This episode, you get to meet Mike Woodman. Mike was one of the Pink Panthers' best natural athletes, a good student, the whole the whole show. He uh, served in the Air Force for many years, retired as a lieutenant colonel, and traveled the world. After that, he decided to become a Southwest Airline pilot and also had a very successful career doing that. He's got a great attitude, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. Um, All right. So thanks for doing this. I wanted to uh, always always start these off with the same question. That is, what kind of message would you like to uh, provide to the incoming class, the uh, current cadets, the recent grads, and the old the old folks like ourselves? I think uh, for the folks that are just coming in is to try to enjoy the experience as much as you can and do as many things while you're there as you can because unfortunately we look back on it and say you know it was a college experience with a military experience on top of it and we were so busy we don't appreciate what opportunities were available to us if you didn't take advantage on it and you look back on it and say man i wish i had done that um like what what kind of things are you thinking about well i, I think a lot i think a lot of it is unfortunately you know, a lot of it was based on where you rank and so forth. But, you know, if you get the opportunity to do any of the flying things, the, the, the gliding, the jumping, any, any sort of activity like that, if there's a ski club, join it, go out and do that. And whatever else they have out there, that are just opportunities to do things above and beyond, you know, going to class and doing the drills and the sports and stuff. But (laughs) I was going to say, I, my schedule is pretty full. <laughs> yeah, they're all full. But then that's like I said, you, you get so wrapped up in it that you kind of miss out on some of these other things because, oh, man, I really don't have the time to do that or I don't think I have the time to do it. Like I said, later on in life, you may look back on it. Well, I could have made the time. Yeah. It's, it is a unique opportunity. Um, for the folks that are just graduating, um I can only address it kind of from the flying part of life because that's what I lived for 21 years uh, is to learn as much as you can, as fast as you can and enjoy the camaraderie uh, that a squadron can provide. And again, don't burn any bridges, have as much fun as you can, but the folks who, progress i guess faster than others are the ones who kind of follow into that learn as much as you can about whatever your career field is and then try to do the best you can at it because that's where you're going to get the best self-motivation and the best feedback is when you know you've done a good job and you're helping out with others around you so this this uh your advice is really really cool i uh i had one uh motto i i used it at the academy which got me in trouble probably more than anything else and that was don't let academics interfere with your education and that that is uh sort of what you're saying is do more than just the uh the the grind because there's a lot of stuff in the grind oh absolutely you can get caught up in it and uh the aviation world is constantly changing and there's some things out there and you can't get you can't get complacent in any of that because you're going to end up in big trouble if you do yeah but uh absolutely and yeah, again right. there, there's a social aspect to that too bringing the families together and having fun with the folks you're you're working with and then enjoying himself not only while you're at work but off work so so 
that brings me to the first question is why did you go there? It was very interesting. I didn't, the academy life wasn't uh, really in my radar till about my junior year in high school. I had never really contemplated it. I grew up on the east end of Long Island uh, from the seventh grade on. And little of the history in my family, my dad had flown in World War II for the Navy. And he flew Corsairs and torpedo bombers in the Atlantic and the Pacific theaters during the war. And was medically retired when I was five years old. So we were never really that caught up in the military background. But I just remember in his life, he always, you know, enjoyed his time with the Navy. And so my junior year, he kind of approached me one night and said, have you ever considered going to the Naval Academy and flying airplanes? And, you know, being a rocket scientist junior in high school, I said, well, no, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so, so that's when I started the whole academy process with my local congressman and going through the, the, the entire rigmarole involved with it. And I think my dad was more fired up about it, the fact that I may be following what he did and flying off of carriers and doing all this kind of stuff. And my congressman finally came back to me and said, you're the one I want to send. Here's a small problem, though. I don't have any openings at the Naval Academy. Would you consider going to the Air Force Academy? Mm. And quite frankly, I didn't even know there was an Air Force Academy. <laughs> I knew there was West Point. I knew there was Annapolis because I'm an East Coast guy. Yeah. So I said, well, they fly airplanes. Sure, I'd love to go. So that's how that happened. Wow. And so I really knew very little about the Air Force Academy until... I got accepted and then I started looking things up because high school counselors weren't the same as they are now in our days. So, um, yeah, that's how I got to, it. You had to do a lot of your own research. I remember. <laughs> Absolutely. I think counselors at those days were more for problem children than the worst for those of us trying to figure out what we wanted to do in life. Well, so. yeah, that, that, that was the vast majority of the kids in our era. Um, plus the draft really helped, uh, focus guys in the college stuff. Certainly. Yeah. So what, so did, when was your first time to the Academy? My first time to the Academy was the day we had to be there. Um, <laughs> and quite frankly, you know, I didn't know anything about it. So I flew from Long Island to Colorado Springs, got off, got onto the bus that said, you're going to the Academy. And when they dumped us at the uh, bottom of the ramp, that was it. That was my first exposure to the Air Force Academy. And I just remember being in basically a cloud literally because we could we couldn't <laughs> see more than about what, 100 yards because yeah. of that cloud and they really never saw the place after that once our chins got locked in and you couldn't look anywhere so i didn't know much about it and i found out in a hurry yeah <laughs> what so what was your what was your first uh, year first summer first year anything notable from that uh i think a lot of it had to do i was i think i was pretty much overwhelmed um by what was going on with the whole program i it took a little while to understand where we sat in life and even you know as freshmen you kind of figured out what was going on in there um probably like everybody else i was just waiting for that first year to get over so you could kind of feel like being a human again <laughs> yeah and then just trying to figure out the system more or less you know getting into the academic routine and the military routine and having time to sleep and putting it all together and 
that was a busy first year. <laughs> that much what, I do remember. Which which uh, squadron were you in as a dual? I was in 31st squadron as a freshman, and then uh, 36th squadron Panthers. Obviously, the rest of the time. Yeah. So 31 is uh, that grim, who, who the grim reapers. The grim reapers. Yeah. So they uh, was that a transition mentally from what? Well, obviously, dual year to third degree, but. What about Pink Panthers? What what stuck out for you about your first uh, impression of the Panthers? Well, first of all, I enjoyed the freedom of not having to be a freshman anymore, big time. And I think the biggest transition to being a third classman was learning how to help train, you know, the freshmen maybe a little better than I thought we were handled. <laughs> and, and, and learning from some of the guys, you know, the first, second classmen that, you know, were already in there and watching how they handled things and kind of took that into to later life in the Air Force. You always want to take the best of what you see out there and incorporate it into your routine and, and then be aware of the things that you're not so hot about and for whatever reason that may be and then try to do away with that and make sure it doesn't happen. And so it the hardest transition as a third classman to me was trying to fit in as a, as a trainer, you know, somebody guiding and helping out guys, you know, they're coming in as freshmen and then being able to take care of yourself and to getting your goals met as you go, be it academically or militarily or whatever they are. It's, it, it, you know, it didn't get that much easier. It was still, a busy time frame because you're just taking on new roles. Yeah. I, I think, uh, like you, I, <clears throat> I struggled with being real hard on a freshman when I was at the three degree, just because it'd been so hard for me. Right. But I realized by the time I was a first year that there's a, there's a method to the madness. And no, you didn't want to be excessively hard and abusive, but you did want to make it tough enough. So they, they got that right mindset to be successful when they graduated. Yeah, and a lot of that part was, and, and I don't think it was uh, beaten into to me as a freshman that the whole purpose back in our time frame, and I'm not sure how it is now, was you're trying to lose your individuality and become part of a group, become part of a team. So you, your freshman group and whatever squadron you're in is part of, is going to be that group. And then when you get to the new squadron, so when we got to the Panthers, you know, we became part of that group and usually got segregated by class. So, I mean, our class and the Panthers was a group and you, you stuck together with that group and you're trying to build that camaraderie into every class. Because I, I can tell you over the course of my career, once you got to the point where you, you had that togetherness as a group, here we are 45 years later still with that cohesiveness when you get out in the air force and you're in a squadron you know we we kind of went with that so there was a lot of cohesiveness to all the fighter squadrons i was in until i got later on and you could see the transition away from okay the squadron's okay but i'm i'm done at the end of the day and i really don't care to do this that and the other thing and so you you sort of saw that drifting away near the end of the career but yeah. early on it's, it's i thought it was vastly important that was some of our best assignments were the ones that we stuck together 
both while on duty and off duty and did things together. Those were the most fun squadrons and probably the closest friendships I still have to this day. Okay, so speaking of off-duty and Pink Panthers, <laughs> what were some of your favorite stories? Oh my lord, I'm not. I'm not too sure that. Uh, well, off-duty. I mean, uh, I'm sure some of the other guys have talked about things that were more popular in our time frame. I don't know if some of the other guys have talked about our streaking habits at the some of those things there were a couple of instances i remember and again it was more or less group togetherness is when we went out and decided to move some of the airplanes on the terrazzo <laughs> that was one of my more favorable time frames because i still, still think to this day they can't figure it out how we got the 104 where we got it but um <laughs> and, and let everybody know that, that it goes there now where did we put the 104 we put the 104 in our quadrant which is uh, 36 is over by the chapel down on where the side John Hall or new dorm is down on right. the ground floor. Yeah. So we got it underneath the uh, overhang and we parked it in the grass. <laughs> and uh, I, and I'm sure the civil engineers hadn't figured out how we got that tail underneath there, but we did. You tipped and it, I, right? <laughs> yeah, we tipped it. We tipped it more than one way <laughs> and got it underneath there, but, um that that was probably the, the masterpiece and then the i think the other one that stood out was uh when we spent i don't know how many hours painting the giant pink panther on a bunch of sheets and hung it from the commandant's office <laughs> yeah yeah that was that was pretty wild that we, we tried to do it at night but the library ceiling was locked so yeah we had to do it in the daytime but minor was, difficulties <laughs> yeah <laughs> the ceiling inside the elevator shaft was locked um, I, I was going to say, I remember the, uh, the time we painted the AOC office pink. Yeah, I wasn't, I don't think I was in on that one, but, okay. uh, so you were was, in on those other two though. That's good. I was in on those two. Absolutely. And then, uh, so that helped build some camaraderie. I thought the pink Panthers also had a really cool deal different from that separated us from the rest of the herd. And that was the Thanksgiving, uh, vacations we got to take. Yes. Um, and I don't know how that came about and um, how we got selected to go be the escort for the Palmdale Lancaster Debutante Society. But not only were those a lot of fun, it was away from the academy. Um, we got to meet some great people, both the debutantes and their families. They took great care of us. We had a lot of fun. I'm, those Those were kind of special. And I don't know how we got selected, but I felt honored that they did. And I mean, we kept in touch with some of those families for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I seem to recall that 36 was the, uh, was hosted by Edwards prior to our arrival. And that when we showed up, they were host. Our host was Tinker. Well, I don't know. Oklahoma, but the people in Edwards kept having this debutante thing. And so we, we got invited just because of the history that they had lost any squadron affiliation. Yeah, that's so we, we ended up with two two hosts, I guess, and no, nobody ever did anything in Tinker. We just we always go down. The, always went to Edwards. Yeah. So now you those... mentioned. Uh, I was gonna say, go ahead. No, that's okay. You were you mentioned skiing as one of your things. Well, I, I came from Long Island, and there was no snow on Long Island. 
skiing was not something I did on a regular basis. And then uh, in our freshman year, the squadron, the 31st squadron had a squadron ski trip and the freshmen were allowed to go. And that was my first time on snow skis. And uh, fortunately, there were some other freshmen who came from skiing areas and I can remember <laughs> trying to give us the basics of snow plowing and here's how you turn and, and go. And I thought it was great fun. And so one a position where you can do it, and I don't know, again, if the ski club is still an active event there, but in the ski club, and what a great deal when you can get all of your equipment done there. And then the Mitchell Hall would put together, you'd have a breakfast buffet. They'd put together a box lunch for you. You got on yeah. a bus to go to the ski slopes, and for like $10 a ticket, you went skiing all day. <laughs> you, you could, they gave you transportation. You eat your box lunch when you got back on the bus. You slept all the way back to the academy, turned your equipment in, and then it would boop, you time to study. But I mean, yeah, we had chance to, to increase a skill that was non existent when I got there and it turned out to be a ton later on. So, now, now Mike's being humble. Things. Mike is a very good athlete, he could do anything. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate that, but uh, I have some scars that prove otherwise. So, <laughs> well, I'm not saying that every everything went perfectly all the time, but that's when, true. Uh, yeah, did you have any uh, any special memories of intramurals? Um, I just remember again as a progression things. Uh, I just I thought that. As a Pink Panther, again, the squadron was pretty, pretty unique in the fact that there are certain sports guys were really good at and came together. I mean, we always seemed to be competing for the wing in rugby and uh, some other sports like that. Well, boxing. We won the boxing. Boxing. Well, yeah, the guys we had there, they were phenomenal. Yeah. When you get, when you get John Dietick going to be the number two in the wing in his weight class, that's pretty good. But um, I think we were probably more of an athletic squadron than we were an academic <laughs> squadron. Oh, well, yeah, that's, that's no lie. We're probably yeah. So I mean, all our teams were pretty good and it, I just enjoyed playing. I got a chance to play some sports I had never had a chance to play before. So I, I you know, played water polo. We were there intramurally. I thought that was great fun. Do and you remember played... the, uh, the, the bathing suit deal? Really, I just remember, I can't remember if uh, Steve Hall or Wayne or somebody, we had the black bathing suits, but I don't remember what the deal was. Well, I remember one year that one of those guys figured out that if we did it, we could get Speedos. Speedos, that much I but, do remember. And, and I that, think we're... Uh, the, the, two, the, the issued bathing suits in the academy were these little boxer kind of things, and, and uh, these guys came up with the idea of getting us Speedos, so we... Just for those listening in, the, there's a viewing platform up above the uh, pool. Where you couldn't hear it when you're in the water playing water polo, but we'd look up at the end of our matches, and all the female visitors were watching our matches. We couldn't figure it out why until later we realized it was the Speedos. Yeah, I guess that must be true. I don't even remember. It just kind of part, went with the flow. That's that's what the team was wearing, and we all wore them. So. Yeah. 
It made we thought it made us faster in the water, but it didn't help there. But it apparently made us more popular. Yeah, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure that was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't there up close looking at us. I know that. <laughs> no, that it's a distance of distance appeal. So, um, before we wrap up the academy section, uh, did you have any struggles? Did you ever think of quitting? Oh, absolutely. Um, especially freshman year. Uh, again, this, uh, I'll back this up in the fact that, uh, I was one of the younger guys in the class. Um, yep. during the course of my elementary career, I ended up skipping a grade. And so I had turned 17 in of my senior year of high school. Wow. And, and so we showed up in early July. And so, you know, here I am, I should have actually been a senior in high school. So, I can I can honestly say that emotionally, I was not with probably most of our class because I'm you know I was still trying to figure things out as the youngest guy all through high school. If it makes you and feel any he, better, the old guys didn't like it either. <laughs> yeah, and so it was very tough. And there were some of the times when uh, I don't know if you're being singled out or whatever. If you get disciplined in a harsh way, it's like, what am I doing here? Yeah. And it really took some internal soul searching to say my goal of showing up at the academy was to graduate and go five fighters. That was it. That was my single purpose in life for being there. And I would have to remind myself numerous times that I'm not going to get that any other place. So you can hang on, you can do it. And, um, Quite frankly, a lot of that went away after freshman year, and, and pretty much after that, I I didn't remember having any t- true struggles as far as staying or leaving. Well, that's good. So the pink the pink thing was okay for you. There was no. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I that gave us a chance to you know get closer with a lot of the guys, and you see the different stories and where guys were going, and I never had any problems about leaving after that. So you must have graduated pretty high in the class because your first assignment was Williams. I don't No, I graduated, you know, towards the middle-ish. Um, well, okay, I should say you must have been top of the squadron then. <laughs> <laughs> For what was, le- what was left of the squadron after they took all our smart guys out. But, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, no, I I don't know how that worked. I can't remember if it was a lottery system or it was just luck of the draw. But uh, I ended up. I can give you a quick recap of the career after that. Yeah. Was, I went to went to pilot training at Williams Air Force Base. Uh, upon showing up at Williams Air Force Base, found out we were going to be in the very first class of women going through pilot training, and so that was kind of a shock when we showed up. But we acclimated to that. And after pilot training, uh, I got picked to fly the F-4. And so I went from there to fighter lead in and ended up at Luke going through F-4 training. And my first assignment was at Nellis Air Force Base in the F-4. And I went from there to the Philippines flying the weasel version, the F-4G. So what did you do? At, I'm sorry. You said Nellis for... Uh... F-4s, was that part of Red Flag, or what was that? No, that, there were three operational F-4 squadrons at Nellis at the time. And while I was there, uh, Nellis was picked up to convert to the F- first of the F-16 squadrons. 
And that wasn't going to happen until MPC had already given me a call and said, hey, we'd like you to go to the Philippines, fly the F-4. And so my squadron commander didn't know if I was going to be on the list to uh, make the conversion or not. So we, my wife and I discussed it, and a bird in the hand was better than two in the bush. And so we took the Philippine assignments, flying F-4, and it turned out to be one of our best assignments ever. You were there a long time, right? I was there for two assignments, and so I flew the F-4G, and then uh, I was picked up to be an aggressor and fly the F-5, and so I went back to Nellis for nearly six months through the aggressor program to learn how to fly the F-5 and then to be a, uh, an adversary, and then went back to the Philippines for almost another two years, and at that point in time... Um, MPC and their wisdom decided I needed to go fly the F-5 for another tour elsewhere because I'd been in the Philippines too long. They didn't want me to bit my whole time there. Yeah. So, so we took the assignment to Alkenbury, England, because I'd already been to Nellis. And how far outside of London is Alkenbury? Alkenbury was about an hour north. And um, we found out there's a lot of difference between the Pacific Theater and the European Theater and, and how they... <laughs> how they operate and how they think. Yeah. And uh, turned out I was actually gone TDY more in Europe than I was in the Pacific, which again is a hardship on families, but flying wise, it was awesome because we were the only adversaries for all of Europe. So I got to fly against not only U S aircraft, but pretty much any NATO ally over there. I'm I got to fly, I got to fly, I got a ton of airplanes. Did you live on base in both places, Clark and UK? We, well, no. We first year in Clark, we lived off base in a, a compound with other Air Force people. And then after the first year, we got to move into on-base housing, which made it much better because you could not afford to air condition off base. It was way too expensive. Yeah. And then once we got on base, we could buy air conditioners and keep our house reasonable. So that was great. And the same sort of thing happened in England. Um, we had to move off base to start with and found out that radiated heat in England didn't do too much. <laughs> and, and then again, me being gone a lot was a lot. I mean, both my kids <laughs> caught chicken pox on different deployments to Italy. So my wife was not real happy about that. I can remember that one. Uh -oh. And so that, that prompted our move on base. And so that was good. And then in, uh, 88, 1988, I'd been at Alkenbury not quite two years. Uh, the Air Force shut down the adversary program for budget concerns. Hmm. And so I was told, well, you've flown for this program for four years. You need to go find a desk job. And so I found a desk job in Hickam, Hawaii at PACAF staff. And so we spent three years in Hawaii, which was awesome weather-wise. It wasn't so much fun not flying, but... It so was you didn't get to fly at all while assigned to uh, PACAF? No, no military flying. Uh, I ended up being a certified flight instructor, so I would teach for the Aero Club on the weekends and stuff, and then you know fly family and friends when they came out to visit, but that was all flying. There was nothing military. And I think that's important for everybody to know that you, you kept the skill up, even though you weren't in the official cockpit, you kept your yeah, I kept, awareness I and thinking. kept my fingers in the in the business. And then, uh, when a three year time frame came up, um, again, I was on the leading edge of a not great program, but 
not everybody coming off the staff because of manning and the reduction of forces was going to get to go back and fly again so they had what was called a return to fly board and i was on the very first one of those suckers and fortunately uh i was picked to go back and fly the f4 again the bad part of that was i was a programs guy so i knew exactly what airplanes were going to be where and how long they were going to last and i knew the f4 was (laughs) was getting retired at a rate rapider than i was probably going to get back to the cockpit in so i had a very um, conscientious boss and at one time was brigadier general lorber john lorber who was a class of 64 he was my boss in PACAF, and for a short history, he was the person who scored the very first touchdown at Falcon Stadium, for those yeah. who care. Cool. Um, he went back and called MPC, and we, we had talked about this with my boss, who related to him, and I got put back into the system. They took my F-4 away, which was fine, because there was only going to be one squadron in the entire world by the time I got out there. Yeah. Um, and so I came back out and was given the choice to go fly F-111s, T-38s at Williams or the A-10 anywhere I wanted to. And again, because I didn't want to fly 111s. I knew Williams was going to close. And so I took the A-10 and it worked out to be great. So I spent the last five and a half years of my career flying the A-10. Out, of, out in Arizona? Yeah, Davis-Monthan at Arizona. So okay. it worked out very well. So I ended up having... I came in as a brand new A-10 guy, as a, an assistant ops officer and a bunch of other jobs. Got promoted lieutenant colonel. I uh, was made an ops officer in uh, two different squadrons. I took a six-month hiatus to help close down an A-10 squadron that was at McCord at the time. And then became the commander of the 354 squadron at davis Mountain until I retired. So in um, all this flying, so it was 20... 20- 21, 21 years active duty, is that what he said? Pretty pretty close, within two months. So 18 years of flying? Yes. How, how many hours? And, and I had, I want to say, close to 5,000 hours of fighter time. Yeah. I had, I had about a little over 2,000 hours in the A-10, about 1,500 15 or 1700 hours in the uh, f4 actually it was close a little over 4,000 hours and about 800 hours in the uh, f5 i just want everybody to know that that that's a lot of takeoffs and landings it is well the, the <laughs> average shorty duration the f4 is about 1.1 to 1.2 the f5 was about 0.7 and then the a10 was two hours which was what it was designed to do so but, uh, it, you know, and then the next part of that whole regime was I was quite happy doing what I was doing. But I would say for the guys who are out there now, uh, military flying and a flying career is a limited time frame. So at some point in time in your early 40s, there's going to be a transition. You're either going to go into an advanced leadership position where your flying gets decreased or it's going to be time to retire and you're going to have to find something else to do. And so I kind of looked at both edges of that sword and about two to three years before I thought I was going to retire, I went out and got a type rating in the 737. How'd you do that? I did that 
uh, it was easy enough to do. There were schools all over the place. And so um, I applied to one in Phoenix because I was down in Tucson. And upon my return from Washington State, I had time off because I'd been away from home for six months. And I went up and did the the course then. it's a, I think it was a two-week process. I don't really remember right now. And I just did that as a what if, just in case. Sure. I really wasn't planning on retiring anytime soon, but I wanted to have it in my back pocket. And a lot of the background to that, a good friend of mine who had gone through pilot training and F4 training with together, we actually lived together in F4 training, ended up getting out and went to Southwest. He was one of the first of our class to go to Southwest Airlines. And by the time I came back, to Arizona to fly the A-10. He was the chief pilot for Southwest in Phoenix. Oh, wow. And so he's the one who kind of advised me. He said, you know, I don't know what you're going to do, but it's always a good idea to have this if you think you want to come to Southwest or it won't hurt for any of the other airlines. And so I just put that in my back pocket and did it. And it did come in handy because as I was giving up the squadron, MPC said, well, we really would like you to go to Korea. Mm. And, you know, be a deputy group commander out there. And I'm saying, dude, I just spent 11 years in a row overseas before I came back to Arizona. I really don't want to go back again. Plus, my kids were getting into high school and all that stuff. And I said, if you can find me something else stateside, I'd be happy to stay and do that. He said, no, we really need to go to Korea. So they made up my mind for me. And I put in my papers, retired. And I had already interviewed with Southwest Airlines. And I was just waiting. I don't quit your day job letter. And I was fortunate enough to get hired. And so I've spent actually nine days in retirement between the Air Force (laughs) and when I showed up for training at Southwest Airlines. And you flew with them for 23 years? 23 plus years, longer than I did in the Air Force. That's interesting. I just, and then that was uh, pretty much all domestic stuff, right? All domestic. Uh, Even though Southwest was sort of flying international into the Caribbean and Central America, I did not do any of it in my career. So your your fighter pilot takeoff and landing and short flight thing probably paid off real well compared to some of the other guys. I don't sure that that, that mattered a lot. I think they were interested in, in military people in general. Um, as long as you have a, a, a good career and there's not any blemishes on it as far as safety issues or if you don't have problems getting along with people because the airline looks at safety as a primary thing, but they also realize you're going to be sitting next to somebody for possibly a month at a time and you need to be able to get along and work the the crew issues and not have a bad cockpit relationship. And so those are kind of interview things that they look for because I think they assume that anybody who's flown militarily can fly commercial airlines and quite frankly that's true yeah what about the uh you mentioned flying with somebody for a month did you have a similar crew all the time in southwest or did they change all the time how'd that go that was a that was a progression because when i first got hired um you would bid for a schedule and it was a month by month deal and when you got that schedule, there was no way to change out of it. So yeah, when I first started flying over there, I was flying with the same guy all month. 
And then as some of the scheduling tools advanced, uh, they gave you the opportunity to trade things. But initially, it was a manual process, which is really slow. And then over the over the years, uh, after I'd been a captain for probably, I don't know, 10 years, you, they started getting the ability to change your schedule electronically. Ah. And so usually I wasn't able to change my schedule very much, but a lot of the people I was flying with could. And so by the time I was finishing up the last, oh God, I want to say five, six years, it'd be uh, more norm for me to fly with somebody different every week than it would be to stay with some guy two or three times a week because they could change to fit their schedule or something would pop up with the family and they'd have to do something. They could change their trip. And so, yeah, I was, I flew with a lot of people, uh, near the end of my career. All right. Here's the big, uh, killer question to ask, uh, every fighter pilot. And that is, did you have any close calls you'd like to share? Close calls. Um, I think everybody's got some close calls in their book. Uh, how scary it becomes is anybody's wishes, but I mean, it almost became con- uh, commonplace flying the F-5 since it was such a small fighter. And you'd be flying with multiple airplanes at a time. And, you know, you'd have six, eight, ten airplanes up rooting around the sky in one fight at a time. Where you could, you get pretty good at anticipating what somebody's going to do. And we all had a thousand foot bubble around the airplanes that you weren't supposed to bust. And guys were pretty good at that. But that was the assumption that this guy sees you. And there were more than one time where you think like an F-15 is seeing you and he's going to turn this way to avoid you and you're going to start turning. Oh, no, he's not looking at you. He's looking at another airplane behind you. (laughs) He doesn't even see you. So, yeah, there were some close calls within, you know, a couple hundred feet of each other. But did I have anything where I ever thought I was going to perish? No. Or punch out. No, I would, I never, um, and I've had some instances where things, things didn't go well. Um, well, mechanically, yeah, the, I'm sure there's always mechanical stuff. Yeah. And I can remember one of my best flights ever. It was kind of funny because I was in, still flying the F4 in the Philippines and we had third lieutenants there flying with us. And so I had a third lieutenant in the back seat and those were all supposed to kind of be fun flights for the guys you're going to go out and do the actual missions and they're going to do that and then you're going to pair off and go do some stuff and let him fly the airplane for a while that he couldn't do and then come back and land and make it as much fun for the guy in the back seat as you could without him getting sick hopefully (laughs) and uh, unfortunately in this case uh, it was going to be a great ride uh, but the airplane had just come out of maintenance so we actually took off. We went out to the, the bombing range in the Philippines was actually a conventional where you practice bombing on, in a control pattern and the tactical range where you're bombing stuff around runways and so forth. So we went out and, and dropped bombs in numerous areas. And then we went out over the water and then did air refueling. So he got to sit in the back of the air seat, uh, the back seat of the F-4 and watch us air refuel by KC-135. And then we went out and did some other stuff, and then it became time for him to fly. And so we were up north of Clark Air Base in an area called Baguio, yeah. which was a resort 
for military, but it was also up in the hills and there's beautiful rice paddies along the hills. It's very scenic. And we went up and flew around low level and he did acrobatics and other stuff. And it came time to, to head for home. And on the way back, as was often the case, especially with an airplane coming out of maintenance, we ended up losing all the hydraulics. Oh, so, not, not a big deal because the F4 had a tail hook. And you're coming down the land anyway, so what the heck? We were coming down the <laughs> land anyway. If we're going to land normally and use the chute, that's fine. In this case, he got to sit through a, an, emer- an emergency arrested landing in Clark Air Base. <laughs> well, that's cool. <laughs> so for, for a third lieutenant, right, that was it. But yeah, those kind of things happened all the time. But I, there was nothing ever happened that I thought was life-threatening in my military career. And then I guess, did your dad get over to FACU that did not go into the Navy and fly off in boats? Yeah, he got he got over that. I mean, it was he understood. I, th- I he kept pressing the fact that the uh, 360 degree moving 300 foot runway was <laughs> I didn't think was as great fun as he probably thought it was. But uh, it's, it's way more fun in the daytime than the nighttime. I know that. <laughs> that's my understanding. And I never really wanted to try it. So <laughs> well, you did. You got your arrested landing at Clark. That's cool. Lots of them. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing this. I I think the the, the crowd's going to enjoy your stories. Well, good. No, I hope they do it. And it's, it's a it's a great life. It's a great career, and obviously, it's a, an opportunity for them to remember. There's more than one career opportunity out there, so you can have a good military career and have a second one on top of it, and enjoy it all. And we uh, we state loosely in touch with everybody uh somebody's talking to somebody every day in our old squadron from the air force academy 50 years ago and it's pretty it's pretty impressive i think uh there's some bonds there that are pretty hard to break there are and then again a lot of that comes from how well we got together our our sophomore years and went from there yep (laughs) 